Our Old Testament this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 and 15 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day the Lord made earth and sky, before any wild plants appeared on the earth, and before any field crops grew, because the Lord God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, land. Though a stream rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human form from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, Eat your fill from all the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, Don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, You won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. The word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit present with us. We pray that your spirit would illumine the word for us, that it may tell us of who we are and who you are and who you want us to be. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. In the beginning, it's a great way to start the story at the very beginning. And we read the story from Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, and, and we could also go back to Genesis chapter 1 and uh, read that as well. And we see that we have several stories all kind of connected together. In Genesis 1, we have this orderly account of creation. Genesis 2, this kind of winsome account of God creating the first two humans. And in Genesis 3, we see what happens to them when they decide to strike out on their own. And the question that modern people ask about these texts are whether they are true or not. I mean, if these are stories, which shelf would we put them on? Should we put them on the history shelf or should we put them on the fiction shelf? We've seen all the debates go back and forth between science and creation. We've seen Bill Nye, the science guy, debate Ken Ham from the 
Creation Institute and go back and forth in those categories, science versus myth, and over and over and over again. But I want to argue today that that's a false argument, a false dichotomy. It's a dichotomy that only 21st century people could have because we think like 21st century people. One of the things I always tell people when I'm teaching a Bible study is that when we're looking at the text, I want them to start thinking like the people who first cracked open the scroll and read it. So today, as we think about these texts, I want you to, to suspend your 21st century knowledge of astrophysics and biology and all of that and to think like a 6th century BC Hebrew. Can you do that? Probably not. So I'm going to have to help you with that. And uh, that's part of the guiding part of what I do and to help you think about it and look at it through those lens. You might think of it this way. John Walton, who teaches Old Testament at Wheaton College, says that the way that we look at this is kind of like the difference between looking at Van Gogh's painting of a starry night, which was done in the late 18th century, versus a picture from the Hubble telescope in present day. Now, both of those are beautiful, right? They're beautiful in their own way, but they're taken for different reasons. The Hubble telescope picture is taken so that it can show us the depth of deep space and what's out there and to begin naming stars and learning about their properties and all the things that go with it. Van Gogh, who's painting in the 19th century, is not trying to replicate that. He's trying to give an impression of how he sees the night sky through the artist's lens, not the telescope lens. Two different lenses looking at the very same thing but seeing it quite differently. And I would argue that when a person in the 6th century BC heard these creation accounts, they would have brought up very familiar imagery to them that's not as familiar to us in our post-enlightenment age. So we want to read the story the way they did in order to understand it because this is a foundational story for the rest of the biblical text. So this morning, I want to take you through it and kind of give you some, some different markers to think about as we launch this series, which is going to take us through the Old Testament all the way up until Advent. Beginning in Advent, we're going to move through the Gospel of Luke up until Easter. And then from Easter to Pentecost, we'll be looking at the book of Acts and some of the letters of the New Testament. So a grand sweep of the Bible over the course of this year. We're going to move fast and furious, but this particular sermon, this particular text is foundational to what comes next. So if you have your Bibles, which you should, I invite you to open them to Genesis chapter 1. I will get that eventually. At some point, everyone will bring their Bible. We read Genesis 1, and we learn in the very beginning that the earth was a formless void. I always thought when I was a kid that, that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. But when we read the account closely, we realize that when God begins to create, there's already some stuff out there to work with. It says that the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the surface of the deep. We think of a deep darkness. If you've ever been on the sea at night, that's kind of the idea. Now, for ancient people, they would have understood what the author was trying to tell them. 
that in the beginning there was chaos. Darkness and the deep were all considered to be chaos. They didn't have lights like we do. All they could do was light a candle, which you know does not give off very much light. It was hard for them to push back the darkness. The darkness was a place of danger. The sea, because they did not have submarines and could not see what was below it, was a mysterious and scary place. They believed, believed that sea monsters lived under there, that going out on the sea was a dangerous proposition, which it was in those days on those rickety wooden ships. Formless void, darkness covering the surface of the deep. Notice what God does here in creation. In the first five days, he begins to set the boundaries between chaos and non-chaos, between non-order and order. He separates the sea from the land. He separates the light from the darkness. He begins to bring forth plants and animals. This is creation. On the sixth day, he creates humans. And he places these humans there and he tells them to have dominion over the creation. In other words, in the first five days he's creating functions and in the sixth day he creates the functionaries, the ones who will participate with him in keeping it running the way it's supposed to. After all, at the end of each day, what does God say? He saw that it was good, which is a way of saying it's functioning the way it's supposed to. Then on the seventh day, it says that God rested. When I was a kid, I used to love that verse because I thought, Sunday, I just imagined God in a lazy boy. Because that's how my grandpa was, you know? I kind of pictured God as kind of like my grandpa, throwing back the lazy boy, you know, putting his feet up, you know, eating some of that coal licorice candy, you know, that my grandfather loved. I just love that image. But then I became to realize that, that that's not exactly what that means. In fact, if you were a 6th century B.C. Hebrew reading this, you would realize what rest is really about. Yes, it's absence of work, but for God, rest means inhabiting something. And the ancient people would have recognized Genesis 1 as a temple-building narrative. When you go forward in the text and look at the dedication of Solomon's temple, which was to be the place where God's very presence dwelt among the Israelites, inside that temple was the Holy of Holies. And six days they spent preparing for the dedication of the temple. On the seventh day, God's glory rested on it. It's an image of presence, God's presence. So here we see in Genesis 1 three things that are going to be important as we look through this entire series. We see the people of God in the place of God dwelling in the presence of God. God creates these humans for a purpose, to be the priests of this temple, his co-regents, his rulers, his helpers in bringing creation to wholeness and fullness. We learn that on the sixth day, God created humans in his image. What does that exactly mean? Well, John Wesley said that, that there were three parts to it. One, the political image. No, it's not that we vote for God. It's not that uh, we think politics now and it evokes all kinds of crazy, nasty imagery, increasingly so, right, when we watch that. We think about political image of God, we think about the purpose of these humans. What does God tell them? 
They are to have dominion, to rule over creation, to be its stewards and caretakers. Then Wesley said there's the natural image of God where God creates us. Unlike the animals, we have a will. We have freedom. We can use reason. And then in the third way we are created in the image of God is the moral image, that we reflect the very character of God in righteousness and justice. The political, natural, and moral images. Now in Genesis 2, we flesh that out a little bit. Now, it's important for us to realize that Genesis 2 is not the sequel to Genesis 1. In fact, most biblical scholars look at it now and say that these are two different accounts of creation written by two different authors. A couple reasons they say that. One is that a different name is used for God. And two, notice that the order of creation is reversed. In Genesis 1, humans come last. In Genesis 2, they're created first, and everything else is filled in around them. But we learn something interesting here. We get a snapshot of two of the humans whom God created. We often think of Adam and Eve as prototypical, right? They are the, the first two humans. Everyone is born from them. That's a little problematic in the text because very shortly afterward, there are cities. And you're like, how did these cities get populated? I mean, Adam and Eve must have gotten very, very, very busy. But that's not what the text is telling us. In fact, you got that. Are you all here? I mean, I'm really, it's a little quiet this morning. Um, Genesis 2 tells us that two of these people, and God may have created all kinds of people, but he picks two of them to be his, to be his representatives, to be representatives of all of humanity. So rather than prototypes, the rest of the Bible seems to assume that Adam and Eve are more like archetypes. They are who we are. They represent us. God creates them and gives them this mission, same mission as in Genesis 1. But it's clear that when God creates them, as we read in Psalm 8, he creates them a little less than himself. In fact, if you were to argue what the whole narrative of Genesis is about, I could say you boil it down to one sentence. God is God and you ain't. That's the basic message of Genesis. And we know that for a couple of reasons. One, it says that God created Adam from dust. Or as it says in the CEB, the topsoil. Now, we think of that word dust and it reminds us of something. We think of God kind of sitting at the potter's wheel and taking this dust and making one man out of it and then the rest of us are born in the natural way, right? You know, that, that we're not really made from dust except for the fact that the rest of the Bible tells us that we too are made from dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20, from dust you came, to dust you shall return. The Psalms tell us that we are all made of dust, not just Adam. It reminds me of Ash Wednesday. If you're here on Ash Wednesday, we have that part in the service where the people come down the aisle, and as the pastor, I take my thumb and I put them in the ashes, and I mark their forehead. Remember what I say? Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We are all dust. And every time I do that, I'm reminded that there's a good possibility that at some point during the year, 
one of the people whose forehead I marked, I may be burying. And I'll say those same words again. And then I have the cross put on my forehead as well. As a reminder, I'm dust too. Biblically speaking, dust means that we are mortal. That only God can gift us with eternal life. Only God's breath in us brings us to life. God creates these humans, creates them mortal, a little less than himself. But he gives them gifts. The gift of life and the gift of wisdom. He creates them to be partners with each other and partners with God. That's why Adam, his rib is taken and made into Eve. Now that is not supposed to be a physiological kind of image. Sixth century BC, Hebrews wouldn't have understood it that way. They would have understood it as a relational image. That Eve is created out of Adam's side to be an equal, a partner. Remember what it says, the two shall become one flesh. Man, we get this wrong. You know, we, we create a hierarchy. You know, the man is supposed to be the ruler of the house and the woman is supposed to be subservient and all that. Check your Bible. They're created side by side. It's only after the fall in Genesis 3 that the man is supposed to rule over the woman. Remind your husbands, ladies, this is how it works. You are partners together. You are equal partners. That's what we were created to be. The people of God, together in his image. Well, God takes these humans and he places them in a garden. Now, if you're a 6th century B.C. Hebrew, you would know that temples have gardens. That was something that was connected. The beauty surrounding this temple would be for the deity to come and invest and to enjoy and refresh himself. Even the Jerusalem temple has this imagery. Inside Solomon's temple, which you see on the right, there were images hammered into the gold that, that walled the inside of the temple. Images of trees and fruit and flowers. A garden image to remind us of Eden. God's place, sacred space. And these humans are placed in the garden in order to be priests, to take care of this temple, to make sure that it's running the way it's supposed to. And inside this garden are two trees, two very special trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For a 6th century B.C. Hebrew, these represented two things that only God could give. Life and wisdom. God chooses to share life and wisdom with the humans that he made. But there's a caveat. That life and wisdom are only lived out and used when we maintain relationship with God. God makes both available, but only if we are connected to him, only if we live into the mission and the image he created us to be. The people of God in the place of God, dwelling in the presence of God. It's beautiful, beautiful image. Then comes chapter 3. The snake shows up on the scene. I don't know how many of you like snakes. I am not a fan. I know they eat 
rodents and stuff like that. I, I get that. Um, but I have had encounters with snakes um, during my time in the military on patrols and in other places where I've stepped on them, had them wriggle away in the middle of the night, which is, will freak you out for days, I'm telling you. Um, I stepped over one once on a patrol, didn't see it, six-foot rattlesnake, and the medic said to me, he said, sir, he said, you just stepped over a snake. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, if he'd have bit you, he'd have really messed you up. And I said, you'd have loved that, wouldn't you, private? You know, that's part of the deal. They're just suspicious, you know, these snakes. They don't blink. They have dead eyes. They slither on the ground. It's no wonder the humanity's always kind of had this, this standoffish relationship with snakes. And yet in the ancient world, snakes represented a lot of things. They could represent healing. Remember the caduceus, the sign for the medical profession, a snake? They could do healing. They could be signals of death. They could be signs of all kinds of different things. In the Genesis narrative, though, the snake, who we often think is Satan, right? But the text never says that. In fact, Satan only shows up in the Old Testament in the book of Job, where he's more like an accuser rather than the horns and pitchfork kind of Satan we think about. Now, in Genesis, the snake is a chaos creature, part of that chaos that still exists in God's creation. Chaos creatures like snakes and sea monsters and others were designed to be there to kind of, kind of poke and push back against what God had made, sort of like a teenager. Um, you know, they push back on everything that you, you want. You know, they, they kind of say, did, did God really say, I mean, is that, was that really the rule? I mean, did you really say that? So here comes the chaos creature into the midst of God's space and God's people. And says to the woman, and by the way, we blame Eve for what happens next, but read the text carefully. It says that her husband was with her the whole time. Men, uh, it's really important to remember that. And sister, did, did God really say that if you ate from that particular tree, you, you would die? I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, what I think will happen is that if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God. You will know good and evil. Now, when I was a kid and I read that, I thought, but isn't, aren't my parents telling me all the time I should know the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong? Right? Isn't that what they teach you over and over again? And, and, and if I could get that, just by eating a piece of fruit. I mean, parents, would you not go for that? Like, kid, this will teach you right from wrong. Eat this. It probably wasn't an apple, by the way. That's a Western imposition over, over the ancient Near East. It was probably a date or a pomegranate. Eat this. You can know good and evil. It's a temptation, right? But they forgot Remember, only two things are gifts from God. These two gifts that God gives them. Life and the tree of life. The knowledge of good and evil, which doesn't come from munching on fruit, but really comes from a long-term relationship with God. We are with God, and we grow and we learn and we are trained over time. That's how we get the wisdom of God. There is no shortcut 
But these humans decide to take the easy way, at least what they think is the easy way. And they shortcut the process. They listen to the snake. They become reckless. They decide to be the source of wisdom for themselves. We'll determine what's good and evil. We'll, we'll ask God to be, back us up every once in a while, but we'll determine what's good and what's evil. We'll do that ourselves. And what happens? Chaos. Reminds me of a scene in The Empire Strikes Back. One of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. The second Star Wars movie, where... Young Luke Skywalker has gone to the Dagobah system to train with Master Yoda. And Yoda's training him, but Luke is, keeps getting impatient and wants to get on with it and wants to go off and confront his, his evil Darth Vader father. And finally, at one point, he decides he's out of there. He's going to go do his thing. And, and, and Yoda is exasperated. And there is the spirit of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And Yoda's talking with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he says to them, he says to Obi-Wan, Told you I did. Reckless is he. And now matters are worse. Told you I did. Reckless are they. And now matters are worse. They didn't complete the training. They didn't complete the task that God had given them. And all of creation suffers. We call this original sin. Original sin means that the actions of these priests in that first great temple called creation affect all the people that they represent. How that original sin gets passed to us has been the subject of theologians for centuries. Augustine, the fifth century church father, believed it was passed through the blood, that it was literally a physical connection. When we are born, we have that original sin stamped on us. That's a prototypical way of thinking about Adam and Eve. Irenaeus, on the other hand, believed in the more archetypical view, which says that when Adam and Eve sinned, that sin was released in creation like a contagion. And we all catch it. We can't help but catch it. Like a disease. I actually like the Apostle Paul's definition a little bit better. He sees sin as kind of an insidious force that enslaves people. That slavery image is going to be important as we go through the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. We say it in our communion liturgy. Saved us from the law of sin and death. Slavery to sin and death. However it gets passed to us, it's a reminder that instead of having dominion over God's creation, instead of being rulers, we've become slaves. Slaves to sin. And when Adam and Eve became slaves to sin, when they decided to make themselves the source of wisdom, they could no longer be in the presence of God or in the place of God. They were banished from the sacred space, the Holy of Holies. They live outside the garden. And ever since, we have learned what living outside the garden looks like, haven't we? I mean, Adam and Eve experienced this very early on. In chapter 4, we learn that Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And because they no longer have the wisdom of God, they've decided to arbitrarily decide for themselves what is good and evil. Cain decides that Abel is kind of in with God and he is not, so he decides to kill off 
his brother Abel compares himself to the other. Genesis 6, we read about the fact that humanity becomes so thoroughly evil that God decides to unleash the watery chaos once again and start over with another family, the family of Noah. Genesis 11, we learn that even the family of Noah has issues. At one point, they build a tower up to the sky, the Tower of Babel. Now, we often think that, that the tower was done so that they would have a stairway to heaven, like Led Zeppelin, you know, like the stairway to heaven, that they could go up there and, and be there with God or with the gods. But actually, people built ziggurats, temples like that in the ancient world, to bring the God down to them so that the God would be there and be there at their beck and call. They could still be the source of wisdom and have a little bit of God endorsement in the process. This is what happens outside of the garden. Today, the anniversary of September 11th, we think about some other towers that were brought down. A reminder what happens when humans think that they are the arbiters of what is good and evil. That we can decide who lives and who dies. That we know better than God. Human sin, slavery, brokenness, life outside the garden is the story we find ourselves in. It is our predicament. We can't get back to the garden on our own. And that would be terrible if that were the end of the story. But this book is rather thick. There is more to it than that. In fact, when we read the rest of the story, we will see how this imagery in the first three chapters of Genesis becomes so important for us to understand what God is doing in redeeming his creation. Next week, Glenn Powell will be here to speak about Abraham. Yet another family, a couple whom God chooses to start over again with. A new Adam and Eve. Except this Adam and Eve are not young and naked and frolicking like we think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They are ancient. 80 years old. Far past childbearing years. As good as dead, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4. That is old, people. And yet God says to them, you're going to have a baby. The only way that's going to happen is if God gets involved. And God does get involved. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. That you'll have a great family, as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. And this family grows and becomes a nation. And out of that nation, there comes another Adam. A new first new Adam who will come from this family and yet will not be tempted to be like God because he already is God, fully human, fully divine. And this new Adam will be placed on a tree, what looks like a tree of death, becomes a tree of life by which all are offered the eternal life we lost 
in the garden. But there's also a garden. A garden in which there's an empty tomb. Where the new Adam steps into God's new creation on the first day of the week. Don't miss that in the text. First day of the week. The first person he encounters is a woman who tells the story of what God has done. The first Christian preacher, Mary Magdalene. God's new creation has begun. That which humanity destroyed, that which is unfinished will be completed. And then we move to the the last scene in the Bible when the new Jerusalem comes down, shaped as a perfect cube, like the holy of holies in the temple, God's presence coming from heaven to earth, God dwelling with his people once again. And where is the temple in Revelation 22? It says there is no temple in the new Jerusalem because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. What is the vision at the end of the Bible? It's the same vision as the beginning of the Bible. The people of God in the place of God, dwelling in the presence of God. That's the story. It's our story. It's a story we need to live, not just here. It's a story that should force us to our knees to recognize the Adam and Eve and all of us. To recognize our brokenness. To recognize that without a new Adam, we will never find our way back to the garden. Back to the place and presence of God. But the good news is that God, even in our sin, has provided a way. He's provided a person who has given himself for us. I hope you'll join us over the course of this year as we launch into this story, the story we find ourselves in. Because it's the only story that leads to life. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this great story and what you have done. We cannot tell it often enough. We recognize our brokenness, especially today. Images of horror and terror, falling towers and broken people. enemies, violence. Lord, this isn't what you created us for. And we pray that you would help us to become agents in the small way that we can with the people around us, that we can become people who reflect your image in every way. Your dominion and your care and your stewardship. Help us, Lord, to recapture all that you created us to be. We can't do it alone. We need you. Strengthen us for the task. In the name of Christ Jesus, the new Adam. Amen.